Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's another conversation with Agility by Nature, and I'm hosting today. Uh, it's Ian Gill. Um, got a super guest today. Very excited. I'm a little bit of a fan, so if I'm breathing a bit heavy and quickly, know why. So today we're going to be talking about management. And I did dig out my copy of one of my first management books that I ever read, which was The One Minute Manager. Uh, which I think was published in something like 1983. Now, since then, of course, um, we've searched for and had a passion for excellence. We formed at least seven habits, good or bad, uh, and we've been moving our cheese. There's been a lot of management books, and I do not confess to have read all of them or even a portion of them. Today's guest has written extensively. I think we've got at least 16 publications. And when I looked up on, uh, on uh, Google, uh, I found 53,000 entries of blogs, different things altogether. Um, but we have three new books that we're going to talk about and about management. Today's guest is Joanna Rothman. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Ian. I'm so glad to be here. I'm very pleased that you've spared some time. I know you're super busy. Uh, I have to say, we, we planned this in about a month or so in advance to get into your schedule. So thank you. But uh, you're, you're number two in our season two, so I'm very excited. So, I mean, you, you, you've written three books, not one, three books, which are very, you know, a triptych, which is a collection of, I suppose, essays and myth-busting, which is really makes it a lot of fun to read. Why three rather than just the one? In fact, yeah, why three books rather than just one big tome? Well, that's the problem. One big tome. What manager in their right mind would ever read one big tome? Mm. Right. Managers are so busy. They're under so much pressure. Uh, I figured that the way to get people to read these books was to separate them yeah. so that they could read them when they had a chance. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and a bit more incremental. And I must admit, if I was to look at my library, you've got a fantastic library behind you. Mine is woeful at the side. You can tell the thicker the book, the less creases there are in the spine, which suggests less reading. I love the titles actually in the in the books. It's got practical ways to manage yourself, practical ways to lead and serve brackets, manage others, and practical ways to lead an innovative organization. So that practical word is quite key, I'm guessing, and <laughs> distinguishes me perhaps from some of the other books. It might be a little bit more abstract. So what I found was I would, I would go into my clients and they would say, this is our system, this is our culture, this is our environment. Um, and I would say, how's that working for you? And they would say, you know, it seemed really good in theory, yeah. It's not really that good in practice, and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And that was, that was really the key. How could I help people figure out what to do that actually works? And, 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 and do you see it as a sort of an almost how-to? It doesn't come across as a how-to guide, but it's very insightful, and it, it's, it's quite direct. <laughs> so, uh, so Ian, you've been reading my stuff for a while. You told me you you subscribe to my email newsletter. I do, I am, and I read it too. <laughs> good, thank you. Um, I am. I think I would. I would say that bluntness and directness are two of my um, most valuable qualities and most challenging qualities. That, however. They are who I am. 
So I try to to write things down. I might not always do this in words when I say them because, you know, things come out before I even know that they're that they're there. But when I write things down, I try and make the words accessible even to people, maybe especially to people who don't believe what I'm saying, right? Yeah. And that's why every single chapter has options yeah. that people can consider. Not that you should do this, right? This is different from my other books where I say, now do this, yeah. now try this, yeah. right? This is, consider these options. And I find that, um, first of all, there is no one right way to manage anybody at any time. And there is no one right way to manage yourself or the organization. There are many ways that will work for you if you think about the principles behind all of this. And that's why I wrote principle-based books. Yeah. And I, I offer, uh, I'm <coughs> sorry, I offer options. I mean, it's really, how can I meet people where they are and, and propose alternatives? Yeah, uh, and, and, and I did like the there's time, there's one of the, and there's some fabulous phrases in this book, but uh, I am the queen of career limiting conversations, <laughs> how you described yourself, which. <laughs> I am, I am, <laughs> I am. I, it turns out that while I was in, while I was employed inside organizations, I never actually got fired. Well, maybe from my last direct job, I never actually got fired for them. Um, but yeah, I am. I am definitely the queen. Yeah, I, 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 I think I can tell in the book. I bet it's 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 full of fabulous stuff. But when we let's start with self. Let's start with you know. I think it makes it quite clear in the book. You know, before we get into the organisation and managing other people, you have to manage yourself. And I thought well, that makes perfect sense. A lot of people kind of miss that. What are the core core attributes then of managing self in the in the in your in your triptych? So if I had to, to make it just the core, I would say our, or our, our organizations originally hired us because we were excellent at some kind of technical work. Yeah. We have to move from that techni technical work to, um, to coaching others. Yeah. So when we take ourselves out of the middle of the work, when we say, I don't know, yeah. when we look for opportunities to support people, but not inflict help. Um, that's all managing ourselves. I thought that was a great phrase. When I read it, it zung straight up, inflicting help. I have to say, I've used that about 13 times since <laughs> I read it. Not at work, funny enough. Um, I've got inflicting help on, on some of my family recently. Uh, so I will be stealing that phrase, but I will give you, you, you credit. Inflicting help. Yeah, managers want to be helpful, don't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't think any manager wakes up in the morning and says, how can I screw stuff up for other people? <laughs> no, that, that's not what they say. But they, they want to do a good job. And managers work obliquely yeah. through other people. And I, I think that when we lose the direct connection to the work, but our managers still say, you're responsible for getting this product out on yeah. time, in budget, whatever. Um, how, do we, how do we maneuver through the organization to do that? 
I, I thought that was really interesting because I thought one of the things you talked about, and, and I think what's really clear is if you think of yourself a manager in old money, telling people what to do or inflicting help, um, and now you're reframing management, say you're the coach, your support, your help. You're not actually in the, you're not in the work of the service. You're, you've got to stand back. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's quite uncomfortable for some people. Oh, it's totally uncomfortable. <laughs> I I hated it. I, I have stories. I'm not sure any of them are in these books. But when, one of the first times I came home as a, as a director level, I, I came home and I flopped on the couch and I said to my poor husband, uh, now I, I was being a drama queen. I got nothing done yesterday or today, Mark. <laughs> nothing done at all. All I did was talk to people and then I said, Ah, uh, that's my job. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I did not finish anything I had set out to accomplish. I had laid the groundwork. I had used my influence. I had done all kinds of things, but I had not finished anything I wanted to finish. Yeah, and and that you know. You made a really interesting point earlier, and I, I picked this up in the book, and I see this in IT. I've seen it in other disciplines where. Someone is promoted because they were very good at doing the job, a job. Mm -hmm. I see this classically with salespeople, actually. Great salespeople become sales managers. And then the wheels come off the wagon quite quickly. And I think I see it in IT a lot where people are really technically good. And then they become managers of. And they keep saying, yeah, but I've got to keep my hand in. I've still got to be technical. I've still got to do the job as well as managing people. And you know, how do we break that cycle? So I think that we need to recognize management is a different job. Yeah. It's a career change. It's not the same as what you were doing before. In, um, in one of the books, I think it might be in book two, I talked about management time versus um, technical lead time. Yeah. And technical lead time is still focused on the work of the team. However, management time cannot be focused in the team because yeah. otherwise you're not doing either the job of the manager or of the technical contributor. Yeah. So, And we have all kinds of myths about um, we must promote the best technical person and then you're missing out on the best technical person and the manager, right? Because you cannot do both jobs part way. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I thought that was really interesting. And, and, and why I got really interested was thinking about middle managers. So often there's a lot of concentration on the team and the execution, fab. And then there's a lot of discussion about the C-suite and the leadership team and in the longer range direction. And then you've got these poor people in the middle called the middle manager, who probably, if you're doing transformation trans and, and, and change, they're the ones who are most disruptive because they had a job and now... They don't realize they don't have that job anymore and they have to pay and nobody else realizes it as well. And management's hard enough at the best of times. Right. So that's one of the reasons why in, in book three, I started to talk about management teams at all various levels. Yeah, yeah. Right. We talk about feature teams and product teams. We talk about leadership teams. What happened to all these people in the middle? Yeah, Are yeah. they chopped liver? No, yeah. they're not chopped liver. <laughs> they they need to collaborate as teams yeah so so this is where there could be the danger of stepping in 
um, trying to find work for yourself. People, you can't tell them what to do. You are the servant leader. Um, the, this servant leader phrase popped up so many times. Can you, can you help people, instead of being the glib, oh yeah, well, I'm a servant leader. What, what do we mean by the servant leader now? So servant leaders to me um, support, and, and well, let me go to the principles because yeah. I think that servant leaders really embody the principles. The first principle in all three books is to clarify their purpose. Yep. For when you manage yourself, you clarify why you are in this job. What, what value do you offer your team and the organization? When you clarify the purpose for the team, why does this team exist? When you clarify the purpose for the organization, it's why does this organization exist? How can I support that? So clarifying the purpose, I, I think is point one. <clears throat> point two is building empathy with the people who do the work. Yeah. And, and I am totally guilty of this. If, if, if it's simple to explain, how hard can it be to do? Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard. It's work. So how can I build empathy with people at all levels? And then how can I build a safe environment? I was, I was focused on psychological safety in these books. And then, at least here in the U.S. with COVID, we need to focus on physical safety. Yeah. We have environments where people are literally person next to person next to person. And that's not safe at this point. Even when we all get vaccines, it's still not safe. We really need to rethink our work, our workspaces and workplaces. Um, the fourth is seeking outcomes and optimizing for an overarching goal. That overarching goal is related to the purpose. But if we don't understand why are we doing this thing now, as opposed to that thing later, and why are we trying to do this and that and this third, fourth, and fifth thing together? That's not an, over, an overarching goal. And I find that that is, um, if we can create that overarching goal, now we are much more likely to succeed. And then the fifth is uh, encouraging experiments and learning. How many organizations do you work in that say, failure is not an option. Failure is always an option. The question is, how small can we take, how, yeah. let me repeat this. How small can we make the failure? How fast can we learn from it, right? So let's not fail and fall over as a company. Let's try a little something, learn from it, and know where to go next. Yeah. yeah. And then um, catching people succeeding, that reinforcing feedback, of what people do well. That's all part of servant leadership. And then value-based integrity. I find that a lot of organizations want to reinforce zero-sum games, mostly because of the reward system. If we reward people on their individual work and we do not reward them on their collaboration, we are reinforcing zero-sum games, independent work, um, the longest time it takes to finish anything. So when I think of a servant leader, I think of somebody who embodies those principles. 
there's a lot written about servant leadership with very religious overtones. Mm -hmm. I do not buy any of that at all. Mm. I don't happen to think that religion belongs in most workplaces. Yeah, if, if you're working for a house of worship, <laughs> maybe it belongs there. <laughs> yeah, but most of the time we don't work for houses of worship. So let's take the religious overtones and the mystical overtones away from servant leadership. Yeah, yeah. There was so much of what you said. And, and, and actually, when I read the book, particularly the first, which was the, the Imagine Self, there was a lot of warmth and a lot about integrity in there, which is not, I guess, typical of your management books. And I, and I think that's why I thought, actually, this isn't just for the workplace. This is this is really about you, personal beliefs and, and so forth. Um, and, and I thought that was very attractive. But also, I was nodding at some of the things. I think, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. So you can't do your own work. One of the ones that really struck me was, um, and I hate this phrase anyway, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And yep. goodness knows how many of us have heard it and may even have said it, <laughs> may even have said it. You know, we were young ones. Um, how do we keep falling back into these old patterns? So uh, first, I, th I think that people don't know that they have an option. Yeah. And secondly, I think that um, too few people get taught about management. And what they do get taught is all in spreadsheets. Yes. Which is, management is about human beings. And even, even if you did not agree with me, if you said, I have a coherent, congruent way to manage my team, and it's working for me, and, and the team is getting the results that they want, I might say, let me learn from you. Yeah. But most of us do not work in, in organizations like that. So when I think about how do, we, how do we fall back into these old habits, mostly it's because of what our managers tell us yeah. and what the organization rewards. Yeah. But there's also behaviors like this not letting go, I think, isn't there? I mean, oh, know, yeah. yeah there, there is a work ethic. Some people have that work ethic. I come in early, I leave late, I work on holiday, I'm always on, I'm always available. And sometimes that's imposed, but sometimes that's not imposed. That is something you bring to, we bring to the party. Um, and do we realize that there's dangers in that path? I hope so. So, I mean, when, when you as a manager are always on and always in the work, you're not supporting the people you serve in their career growth. Yeah, yeah. They have no place to go, yeah. no place at all. And why would you do that to people? Yeah. Right? And I'm sure that people who think that they're always on, uh, well, who are always, let me try, let me try <laughs> that again, who are always on. I'm only drinking water. Yeah. Um, the vertigo is bad today, so I'm a little um, uh, fuzzy with my words. Oh, well. Um, when, when people are always working, they don't support learning from the people that they serve. And I suspect that those of us who have a little habit of working all the time, and I, I freely admit, I, I do write on the weekends. Yeah. I do. 
right? Um, however, I'm not in the middle of a team interfering with their learning. Okay, so that's a very big difference. And I find that people who do that are often worried. Will I still have a job if I don't prove my worth right. every single day? Right. And that's, that goes back to understanding management is not about the direct work of the team. It's about creating the environment so everyone in the team can succeed. And that's a huge difference isn't it that you recognize you're not here to be part of the work you are here to look at the overall system and your job is to get stuff out of the way <laughs> amongst yeah. others to get stuff out of the way <laughs> yeah yeah and so when someone comes to ask for help we would assume they genuinely need some help because if they didn't need the help they wouldn't come and ask you unless they're showing off perhaps well i mean i'm, I'm trying to think if anybody has ever come to me to show off I I don't think I have ever had an occurrence where that happened. <laughs> I think, I mean, I really think that when people came to me, they said, I really don't get it. I don't yeah. see any options. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, I think that there were a couple of times when um, in a recent cohort I led where people, I thought people came to me and without doing any research. So I said, tell me what you've already discovered. Yeah. So okay. I don't go there. Yeah, yeah. And that was not that's not the same as um don't bring me a problem, bring me a solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's a little bit different. But I think cuz I do want to know that people have done their research right. or in the organization that they've tried several experiments. And if they don't even know what experiments to try, now I can support them cuz now we're going meta yeah, yeah. It's not in the work. It's about the work and about the system. And I think that's very key because it's not, we're not advocating something fluffy and uh, soft here. There's still real work. And we're still, and the one of the points you made actually in the book is I'm expecting that I'm working with adults. You know, your, yeah. your expectation of perfection <laughs> and effort. So it's not just like, let's all just relax and chill. Uh, there's a, a well, relax yes but there's a real job of work always being done and you have expectations oh, yeah. yeah so when i i i encountered this with um a, a portfolio team i was working with in uh in a couple of several organizations ago so um anonymized people and i said how, one of the people asked how can we depend on the people to get the work done and I thought, what a what an interesting thing to say. So I said, uh, under what circumstances do they not get the work done? Yeah. And one of the uh, a person said, well, I don't know, but it seems like they never get anything done. I said, so let me get this straight. These are people who have mortgages, marriages, or some kind of joint um, child raising events yeah. right i mean they have children they have dogs they come to work fed and clothed and bathed most of them right <laughs> i mean we they are humans just like the rest of us so if they can't get the work done is it about them or is it about us right right and that's when um this was an organization that had more multitasking 
than you could possibly imagine. And I'd been working with them to try and get them to say only one project at a time for any given team. And they were really having problems with that, with that, with that idea. So I said, um, if we if we are the problem, if we have created a, a system where they can't get anything done, do we do we really think it's about their adulting capabilities, yeah. or do we think it's about the system? Yeah. And that totally changed the conversation in the room. I think that's a great phrase. Are we are we questioning whether they're adults, or are we questioning something else? And and I think it's it's what I liked about the book is you just put these little they're not barbs, but these little stop points where you think. Uh, okay let me just think let me just rethink what I think I was about to say and try not to say that now and reappraise which I think is great one of the other things that we also expect from managers um, or managers expect from managers make decisions making decisions um, and and I, I was really interested in some of your thoughts about you know uh, the cost of making decisions and the cost of unmaking decisions could you expand on that for everybody because I thought this was Decision making is just interesting for me in Maria. The wait, I have sat in a team where we have waited for three days for the senior team to make a decision. Now, I won't get into the, the cost, but it was thousands of pounds. So thousands of dollars sitting, waiting, because we couldn't do anything until we got a decision. You just thought, and all we got was, oh, they'll get back to you. And I just thought, that's, uh, that's, and in the end, I, I, I gave it a fairly hearty escalation, as you can expect. But, uh, can you talk yeah. to decision makers? I think this is uh, something that a lot of people aren't spending enough time in their minds about how they do it as managers. So a lot of managers don't realize who is waiting for the information, yeah. right? So uh, I think I gave the example of, a, a, again, of a project portfolio team that starts, starts on, call it September 1st, where we want to make the project portfolio decisions for the next year, which a yearly assessment of the portfolio is Ugh. unwise yeah. at best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But let's assume you could plan for an entire year. So on September 1st, we say, well, we need, we need estimation data. Oh God. Right. <laughs> Which is the wrong way to think about the portfolio, but fine. So they send these, these tendrils of requests down into the team. And so the team is supposed to estimate uh, forecast do something at the time that they know the least about all of these projects. So they spend time doing it. They might even spend an entire month creating um, forecast estimates, whatever it is. On October 1st, the leadership team says, oh, we need another piece of information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and we're, they're, they're not going to meet again until November 1st, right? So now September 1st has come and gone. October 1st, they need more information. The teams go off and do this. In the meantime, the teams are not quite sure. Do we continue working on the old stuff? Do we work on the new stuff? What are we doing? Yeah. Um, and it's even worse. So December 1st, right? So the, the portfolio team finally makes a decision in the middle of January and the teams start to work on the new goals for the organization. And then the senior leadership changes their minds. So they have spent, senior leadership has only spent an hour or two once every September 1st, October 1st, November 1st, December 1st, maybe January 15th. 
The teams, however, have been waiting for the direction. What is that overarching goal? What is it that we need to do? What is our new purpose? They are waiting for all of this information. In the meantime, what do they choose to work on? Yeah, yeah. This, this, this is the, um, the cost of delay for management decisions. Yeah. The longer it takes managers, especially to make a large decision, the more the, the entire organization is in flux. The harder it is to focus, the harder it is to do anything. This is why if you have to do a layoff, I'm not fond of layoffs. But if you if you decide on Monday you have to do a layoff, finish all the work by Friday and do it. Just do it. Everybody else knows that's what you're working on. Mm. Anytime and and we have the equivalent of closed door management meetings because everybody can see everybody else's calendar right now. So we know if you're in a senior leadership meeting and we know if you have one on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, we know this, we can see your calendar. This is the same as walking by a conference room with the door closed and all the senior managers, you know, scratching their heads. Now, what do we do? We know this is happening. So don't keep people in the dark, right? Be honest about things. Be as Create the decision and then, well, make the decision once once you have challenges, make a decision. Can you make a small enough decision that you couldn't reverse it if you wanted to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. That context of even, you know, I think we make these decisions, these big profound things, you know, people say, I'm in pain, what do I do? <laughs> okay, right, right, okay, I've got to make a decision. Uh, and then the longer I take, the more unlikely I'm going to un- unchange my mind as well. So I've got into a new trap, oh, I made a bad decision, I'm now going to have to cover that up somehow. <laughs> rather than, rather than, it's just a lack of honesty there, isn't it? Yes, I'm, I'm working on a blog post right now about, um, about leadership tip. Uh, number one, always tell the truth, even when you're embarrassed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this, this goes back to managing yourself. How do you admit when you don't know or you need help? Or how do you admit that you made a mistake? Yeah. It's just, so I, I take medication for my vertigo and my, I have a mail order pharmacy and I got notice on January 4th that they had shipped I'm going to say in quotes, the medication. I take this medication every single day. Right? Yeah. So this is not a surprise. Um, I take it and I'm, I'm much more even. I'm, I don't fall down as much, right? It's, it's all good. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the vertigo was sort of under control. And um, I, I looked at the medication. I had not received it um, two weeks later. And I thought, you know, our post office is a little slammed, but... Let me understand. And at the post office, it, it said a waiting item. So the pharmacy said shipped. The post office said a waiting item. And when I called the pharmacy yesterday and I said, you have not really shipped this. She said, the post office is backed up. I said, oh, no, no. The post office status is a waiting item. You might be backed up. The post office is not backed up. It took half an hour for her to say, okay, we have not yet shipped your item. I mean, 
How could it take that long? I had the data. This is exactly the same thing that happens in organizations. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We see the data. We might not know what to make of the data, but if we're a publicly held organization, we can see the sales reports. Yeah. We understand what the overhead is. Yeah. We understand all that. Yeah. Why, why would anybody lie to us? And it all goes back to how we feel about managing ourselves. Yeah. Can we admit when things have gone wrong? And sometimes we can't. We're human. We are, we are human. Um, when we talk, you talked about self, one of the things you did talk about, so what do we do? Well, and one of the things was flow efficiency was a phrase yeah. that bumped up. And we've talked about WIP as well, work in progress, which in my humble experience, in my, not as good as your career, but in my 30 years, I could be pretty damn sure that if I find there's going to be WIP and there's going to be context switching, and if you stop that, you've probably got 90% of the problem resolved. <laughs> Let's go 50%. That's a good win anyway, 50%. And I almost can't think of any time when that hasn't been the case. Um, but actually to create a culture of flow efficiency. Can, well, let's first of all, can we define flow efficiency for, for all our listeners in podcasts who are about to read your book, haven't got it yet? All right. So um, I got those words from that those Swedish guys. Uh, what is there? There's a name I'm looking in in the um, in the what, oh I have the wrong book. The <laughs> Swedish guys. Uh, let me. What, let me while find... you're looking, I should say to all the listeners, get the book for the bibliography alone is enormous and detailed and fantastic. I mean, it's a research library there for you. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, re I'm really glad that you enjoyed that. So, well, certainly Reinertsen talked about working in flow. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, where are these people? Oh, God, I'm uh, going to have to find. Um, I'll, I'll put it in the, in the summary at the bottom of the podcast yeah. when we publish it. Thank you. It's, uh, the book is called This is Lean. Right. And, and. Um, Oh, Modi and, and Alstrom. Ah. Yeah. So this is Lean, Resolving the Efficiency Paradox. Yeah. I got the, um, they talk about flow efficiency and resource efficiency. Yeah. I read that book and thought, those are the words I need. Yeah. yeah. Right? Those are the words I need. And so our, our organizations reward resource efficiency. What do I as an individual do? Yeah. However, that when we, the more resource efficiency we have, the more whip we have and the more the longer the delays we have for getting the workout the more multitasking we have so if we think about how do we how do we create an organization where we all work in flow of, in flow efficiency we uh, we tend excuse me to have less whip and we tend to have things come out faster yeah. so we We've known about flow efficiency for now years. I'm not sure if Reinertsen actually called it flow efficiency in his books, but we've we've known about that. And in book three, in in lead in innovative organization, I really talked about management flow efficiency. So um, I have worked on several failed agile transformations. Right. Several. Right. I I cannot claim any single. 
um, success. I have some partial successes in my history. I cannot say this entire organization created an, an agile culture. And that was because the, the rewards reinforced um, individual rewards. So in when I have succeeded, even partially succeeded, it's because the managers um, worked together first in flow. Yeah. They did not focus on the teams. Now, I think that teams need to learn how do we work together. We need to um, encourage teams to collaborate at the individual item level, to collaborate as teams. Absolutely. Do teams know how to do that? No, probably not. That's fine. But if we, we can, if, even if all the teams are working together at the, quote, lowest possible level in the organization, if the managers don't work together to solve problems and to create an environment where the teams can collaborate yeah. and we do not succeed. Yeah. And that's really the issue. That's why I focused so much um, to understand flow efficiency for yourself yeah. in book one. Where does your time go? How long does it take you to make decisions? What's the flow efficiency of your team? Can you create that harmonic hole in book two? And how can managers really collaborate in book three? Yeah. We are, um, I'm not sure if we're wired to collaborate or not. I think that we are partially, but our organizations don't reward collaboration. And that's really the issue. I think that's a really, I mean, I've worked like you, I'm the, the, the list of failures behind me is a credit. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's almost like teams hit those sweet spots and they're just indomitable. They're just fantastic. And I think it's perhaps the same with the broader organisation. There's just moments where we're all on the same page. Maybe we've got behind the overarching goal. Maybe this is why the burning platform works so well. We understand, we're clear. And we are driven and we're encouraged to work together. But then at some point, someone will break off and they have a different view. And then their different view is incongruent to the, to the rest. And then that starts disrupting it. Which maybe means we will always have these management books try and figure out how can we keep the sweet spot sweet all the time? Well, and I think we have to reset that sweet spot. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, what worked for us last year might not work for us at all this year, right? I mean, we saw that with COVID, yeah. right? Um, several of my clients are, are planning on, quote, everyone back at work um, in July. I'm, I'm not so sure, first of all, that they need everyone back at work. I mean, some of my clients, yes, they're in the travel and, and entertainment industries and some of the work really people cannot do at home. But some of them, I think a lot of people can work from home. We have proven that working from home, when you create the right environment from home at home, can be possibly more productive than what people were doing in the office. And it might stimulate the coaching side of managers to come stronger because you, you, you're going to have to, you can't do everything yourself. And it's going to be really clear you can't do everything yourself. So you're going to have. Right. People remotely, so you can think more about that. I, we've got a few minutes left. I just wanted to, and there was something I really want to get, and it was about um, it was there was the phrase "embrace management messiness," um, 
And I think it was limiting the number of policies and procedures. And I thought, this sounds like anarchy. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> I think a few people might be going, I'll have some of that. But it's not a subtle, it's a bit more subtle than that. Could you describe giving the embracing management messiness and, and the policies and procedures, how I get, yeah, how do I stop the anarchy? But I bring the. So we all need guidelines and constraints, yes. right? I mean, we have, and depending on the kind of organization you have, if you have a regulated, a regulated industry, yes. right, you have probably tighter guidelines and, or maybe tighter constraints for what, how you do the work, how you get audited, because there are real audits and assessments and things that really matter. But I have worked in organizations where, um, and as, even as a consultant, where my clients wanted to tell me how to take a taxi from the airport. I was not allowed, I, I swear to God, I could not make this up. I, and one client, um, they happened to be in the regulated industry, they said to me, if you want reimbursement for your taxi rides, you must only take a taxi. You must not take a limo. And I said, do you realize that a fixed price limo is often less money than yeah. a taxi to and from the airport? No, um, you can only take taxis. And I, I, I tried to live up to what they wanted. Um, the first day when I was supposed to teach a workshop, the taxi probably locked the keys in the car with my stuff in the back. It took me an hour to get the keys to the taxi. Yeah. So, and everybody was waiting for me. They incurred a cost of delay of 20 people times their hourly cost. Yeah. And that's when I said, Uber, lift, um, fixed price limo. I, I don't care if I get reimbursed. The My mental state was worth more than any reimbursement. And what did they do? They reimbursed me anyway. <laughs> so when, I mean, I, I used to travel all over the world and I, in, I insist on business class travel because I have the vertigo thing and because I'm old and because uh, business class is actually not about the food and the wine. It's about sleeping, yeah. right? So if I'm supposed to get there and be awake, I need to sleep. And this is something that some of my clients have realized really is important. And they try and negotiate with me. And some of my clients, well, I, I postponed work for several clients because they could not get over the fact that I, in, I insisted on business class travel. And so they tried somebody else and it didn't work. <laughs> and um, then they came back to me and I, I did not say I told you so because no, first of all, nobody likes to hear it, especially not anybody you, you live with or want to do business with, right? Nobody wants that. However, what they said was we did not realize the effect on the consultant if he or she did not have enough sleep. That was the that was an insight for them that they did not expect. And when when we realize the reasons for a lot, and now I'm totally on board with saving money. My children would tell you I'm a little cheap, right? So I'm, I'm totally with that. Uh, however, understanding the value versus the cost. Yeah. And this, this value and cost things come up again and again in book three. Yeah, it's a, it's a really 
it's an eye opener. Some of the things in there. I mean, it's, it feels counterintuitive when you first read it, and then you think, nah, that makes perfect sense. That's how it should be. It shall be. And I think that's all how good books should be in this sphere. Um, there's so many questions I could ask you. I, I, I was going to ask you. Actually, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, by the way, the other phrase that you had in the book, which I'm also stealing, um, decriminalise mistakes. Yeah. I love that phrase. I thought that's absolutely right. And how can we have companies, how can we have teams try and experiment if mistakes are capital crimes in the company? Which why do we experiment? And what note, one, I suppose my last question is, you, you were very specific about words, so I know you put this in deliberately, is it wasn't just managing uh, organisations and innovative organisation. I thought there's a reason for that. Why, why particularly an innovative organisation? So, well, I happen to think that all organizations must innovate, especially in their management practices. Yeah. Not, all, or, not all organizations need to innovate on their strategy. Yeah. And so, while I, I would like to separate the strategy innovation from management innovation, and if you think that you do not need innovation where you are, maybe not right now, Okay, read the book and file some of it away and see see if any of this fits your context. However, I have been working across many industries over the last, oh, say, five or six years, and even the real estate companies and the travel and entertainment companies, and not just software as a service. These are people who have hard things like airplanes, right? And, and buildings, they have found that they need to innovate more because the customers expect more of them. And that's our expectations are being driven by, um, God, I hate to say this, the internet, um, but, but with, with um, pervasive um, high fidelity broadband, and not everybody has that. But the more the more you live in a city, the more broadband and really high, really good Wi-Fi you probably have. With that comes expectations of more instantaneous feedback and and service and all kinds of of other interesting things. And if we do not, as companies, offer that to our customers and potential customers, they will go elsewhere. So even if you think that you're in a very traditional organization with a traditional customer base, I suspect you are not. And you might want to read this book just to think, well, what if we did decide to innovate in our organization? How would that be? So I'm happy if people think, yeah, maybe they don't really need to innovate. Not right now. But I suspect that if they if they freed their managers from some of the stultifying procedures and policies, they might realize they could innovate in many many more ways. I, I think that's a lovely. I, I the, the books are so well worth reading because first of all, you yourself have to start with you yourself, and there's lots of 
pull you up moments and I really thought mm, I might have said that in some years ago uh, then there's the understanding of you in context with the things the people you manage and it turns out you don't inflict help you're invited in which makes a big difference uh, and you really have to think about delegation and you should start reading some coaching books and getting some coaching thinking for sure but then the organization and it turns out you don't have to have a funky special unit to the left that does all the fun stuff actually the fun stuff is everybody getting crap out of the way, Oops, sorry, getting stuff out of the way and moving work through and innovation flourishes. I think another point actually is a lot of people say, and I say all sorts of things like world-class and all that sort of rhubarb. Uh, they say we are, we need to be innovative. And you think, okay, well, here's how you can be innovative. Now, do you still think you can do that? Will you commit to innovation? So it's challenging, but not in a horrible way. I think it's a fabulous uh, as I said, tripped it. It's a fabulous set of essays. Lots of, mm -hmm, and we have not done it justice. I know that. So well worth catching hold of it. Joanna, uh, if, if, you know, if people want to get hold of you or they want to pick up further on it, they can buy the books. We'll put links in there. And you've written so many books. Yeah, there's a whole library of Joanna Rothman. There's this, the, your website, of course. How else can they get hold of you? Well, if they start with jrothman.com, that's kind of the basics. I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, let's, I'm on Twitter at Johanna Rothman. Where else am I? I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm everywhere. With all good social and bad social media. Networks. Yeah, much yeah. Maligned, much maligned at the moment, social media networks. Uh, Johanna, absolute joy uh, speaking to you. I'm so glad we get to meet and uh, hopefully vertigo and pills will get to meet in real life in the in the future i'd love to do that but thank you oh for joining us. it's been a treat thank you so much and yes um i i do travel the world with a rollator so yeah i look like a little old lady but yeah what the heck <laughs> well I, I, as the queen of uh, liberty conversation i wouldn't expect i think we've got plenty of fight to do yet <laughs> i think so thank you so much ian i had a blast that's grand